The authors say there, there are four elements that make up memorable moments. And memorable moments have at least one, if not all four of the elements. And it's elevation, pride, insight, and connection. And so the acronym EPIC. And so that helps me remember it. So each one I'll just talk about briefly. So elevation, they talk about memorable moments rise above. That there is Mike Flynn, a national speaker on teacher education, the director of mathematics education at Mount Holyoke College, and all around super nice guy. We chat with Mike today about how to spark change amongst teachers you work with, how to make habits that stick, why some moments from math class stick with us and some don't, And finally, how we can break the script to help students learn math at a deeper level. John, are you ready to get to it? Hit it! Welcome to the Making Math Moments That Matter podcast. I'm Kyle Pierce from tapindutinminds.com. And I'm John Orr from mrorr-isageek.com. We are two math teachers who, together, with you, the community of math moment makers worldwide who want to build and deliver math lessons that spark engagement, fuel learning, and ignite teacher action. Welcome to episode number 66, Implementing Change with Teachers, an interview with our friend, Mike Flynn. John, are you ready to dive into this great conversation with our buddy, Mike? Uh, Of course, Kyle, of course. We are super pumped to bring you this episode. And as always, we are also super pumped to hear all of the reviews and the ratings we see on Apple Podcasts. And before we get into our chat here with Mike, we want to give a quick listener Make Math Moments shout out to one of these awesome listeners and reviewers. Yes, John, did you know I think this is our first actual review from South Africa. And today it's George J007 who left us a five-star rating and review. We are super pumped to put a notch up on the board for South Africa. John, what did George J007 say? Makes my morning drive to school enjoyable. Such great ideas that can be implemented when I get to school on the same day I hear them. It's my first year of teaching and these podcasts give me the energy to go to work with a positive mindset. All the way in South Africa and the advice is still relevant. Thanks, guys. Awesome stuff. Thanks so much to George J007 who left us that awesome five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. We are now approaching 200 ratings and approaching 100 written reviews on Apple Podcasts, and we can't thank the Math Moment Maker community enough. Keep them coming because the more ratings and reviews this show gets, the more educators will actually see it appear in their favorite podcasting app. All right, now before we get into this episode with Mike, we want to let you know about how you can get your hands on a valuable resource. John, tell them about it. Yeah, if you're listening to
to this episode in the week or two it goes live, then you know that spring conference season is upon us. We attend various conferences throughout the year, and a big question that we always have is, is the conference going to be worth it? In episode 15, we give you five tips on how to get the most out of the conferences you attend, and also what you can do if you can't attend a conference this year. After you listen to this episode, head on over to makemathmoments.com forward slash episode 15 to learn how you can get the most out of conferences from a pretty awesome episode. Plus, we've got a resource that you can take with you to those conferences to maximize your learning. You can download the Make Math Moments Conference Companion from makemathmoments.com forward slash companion. You can either print it out or use it digitally on your device. It has places for you to keep important information like contacts you meet, new ideas, and hashtags. It even has a small scavenger hunt style reminder list along the edges. Download that conference companion at makemathmoments.com forward slash companion. All right, let's get to our chat with Mike. Hey there, Mike. Welcome to the Making Math Moments That Matter podcast. We're so excited to have you on the show today. How are things wherever you are? Uh, Where are you coming to us from? I'm coming to you from Northampton, Massachusetts, and it's great. Uh, Things are going really well. I'm still on family leave right now with a newborn. My wife and I just adopted a little baby, and so we're home with her and just soaking in all of that energy. That is awesome to hear. Congrats on that. Mike, we know you a little bit. We've met a few times, we've seen your presentations, but maybe our listeners haven't heard from you yet. Would you take a moment and help our listeners understand just a little bit about yourself and what you do and how you got into education? Yeah, that sounds good. So I'm currently the director of mathematics leadership programs at Mount Holyoke College, which is a small college out here in Massachusetts. And we basically run a master's of arts in math teaching program and do a bunch of professional learning for coaches teachers and administrators in math education all throughout the country. Before that, I was actually a second grade teacher for 14 years where I just loved math, science, all of the STEM work. And what brought me into education was way back in high school, I took a course called Peer Education, which was all about going into elementary schools and teaching kids about the dangers of peer pressure and drugs and alcohol and all of that. And the big culminating thing we did was a lesson for sixth graders. And when I went, I did it more just because a lot of my friends were taking the class and I didn't really think about education at all. But my teacher, after she saw me do my lesson for the class, said that I really should think about a career in education. She said, you really have a knack for this and I think you'd be really successful in it. And that stuck with me. And I actually switched majors when I went to college and got an education from there. Oh, that's fantastic. Fantastic to hear. Here in Ontario, we have some similar programs, but I don't know if it's exactly structured like the program that you went through. Like for us, we have like different co-op opportunities where kids can go in and try out different career paths. But I really like this idea of actually going in and really it's kind of a community building experience, it sounds like. And I'm sure that had an impact on not only you, but probably your peer group. Would you say that that might be the case? Oh, for sure. I think all of us as 18 year olds, I mean, we're still kind of idiots, right? But you were doing crazy things. And it was really important for us to actually sort of step outside of our egos at that time and to really think about the needs of this younger generation coming in. And it was pretty powerful for us as seniors. I think it was really powerful for the sixth graders that we were working with. And it was a really good experience. I hope the program still exists. I don't actually know if they still do it. 
That's awesome, Mike. We ask all of our guests this one question. We want you to think back into like your education as a student. And you just said one that helped shape what you wanted to do with your life. But when we say the word math class, what pops into your brain as like sticking with you and your experience? Yeah. So normally, I'm sure you get a lot of positive comments when people think about math moments for themselves. And what's interesting for me, and it usually surprises a lot of people to learn this about me, since so much of my life now is in math education, is as a student, I never really liked math. I'd actually say I probably hated math growing up. And a lot of it is because of the way I experienced math. And I'm not sure how all of you experience math or your listeners, how they've experienced it. But for me, math was very much a lot of emphasis on speed, a lot of sit and get, a lot of worksheets, working in isolation. And that's not at all how I engage as a learner. It's not anything that I, and particularly the speed piece of it, because something that's unique about me as a learner is I always had a slower processing speed. In reading, I'm a slower reader. In math, I'm slower at performing calculations, but I'm careful. I've always been a big, deep thinker as a student. And any classes that emphasize speed, and especially high-pressure speed, shut me right down because it wasn't that I couldn't do the math, but that sort of environment was not conducive to learning. And so a moment that stands out for me was in third grade, this particular teacher, she was a really nice teacher, but in math, it was all about the speed of our facts. And she had the big wall up. And of course, my friend and I were way in the back. And I knew my math facts. I just under those high pressure situations, I couldn't perform. And I was so frustrated being sort of shamed like that. And so what my friend and I decided to do is when the teacher went out to do recess duty, we sneaked back into her classroom and went into her closet. And she had all of the drill sheets that she would use in her closet. And we went and took one of each of them for ourselves and then just took them home. We completed them, which didn't take me that much time, actually. I mean, it was pretty efficient. I could do that. So we completed them all, brought them all in and hid them in our desks. And then each day she would give out like that day, wherever you were, that's the test you got. So she'd hand me my threes tables and I'd have to work through those. And so I would, as she's passing papers out, I would take the one that she gave me stick it in my desk, take the completed one out and put it on my desk. And then we all would cover our papers. That's the way we were encouraged not to ever look at each other and stuff. So it was easy to hide it. And then I pretended to pull it out. And the thing is, both Scott and I went from zero to hero in that we blew through the whole list. And like, she was so proud of us and everything. But the reason that stands out is it's like, I realized how to game the system that there was no sort of accountability on our knowledge and understanding. It's like, if we just played this, and so that shaped who I became as a math student in a lot of ways, I just figured out what was the thing I had to do to make the teacher not so frustrated with me or make them happy. And then that's kind of how I got through math. But there were pockets where I had teachers where rich problem solving was accentuated. Like I remember taking AP computer science. And that was like the first time I experienced real math where I actually got to like, if you've ever done computer science, it's like you're constantly problem solving and it's not easy and there's no clear path. And that's exactly the kind of learner I was. And it was the first time I really felt like I just truly loved math, but I didn't define that as math. Like I love that class. Right. Out of it right. Computers. And mm-hmm. so anyway, that's a little bit about me of 
you know, it wasn't until I was an adult that I actually learned to love math. And I can talk about that experience too, if you're interested in that pivot. Yeah, no, absolutely. Like I'm listening. There was so many things that sort of hit me. And obviously we've had very similar conversations with so many guests, like so many people who are doing great things in the math education world who have had similar scenarios or similar experiences to you. John and I present on two groups of students oftentimes, and I almost feel like it's like two groups of educators that we speak with. And there's like the group like you've experienced where it was like, ah, geez, like you felt like you were pretty good at it, but you just weren't able to deal with that high pressure, that stress, that anxiety that it caused, all of those negative responses to the overemphasis of like answer getting. And then there's this other group and John and I sort of fell into this other group where like we thought we were good, but really we just learned how to game the system really early. Like we were lucky in that we could come up with these like facts quickly, but boy, oh boy, did we not know how to problem solve at all. So it was like, at the end of the day, we sort of ended up in the same spot, except we didn't feel that same stress or anxiety. We almost had realized that we didn't know math as well as we were told we did because our grades said one thing. And at the end of the day, if like any problem hit us that we didn't already know the answer to before we started, we would push it away because we didn't want to look like we didn't know the answer. So regardless of which group you fall into, I feel like we're all all struggling with the same thing because of some of the ways that we've learned and taught mathematics for so long. So it's so great to see that folks are actually starting to shift their mindset around it. And the other piece that really resonated with me when you told that story, I'm painting this picture in my mind. And John and I have seen you do a couple presentations in the past. And I always like how you bring up a story. It makes it so memorable. So being that it's the Making Math Moments That Matter podcast, I would love to do a little pivot here to talk about one of your talks that we saw recently. This one was back in April at NCTM, where you had focused a talk around the Heath Brothers book, Switch, which is how to change things when things are hard. And I think it's a great conversation for us to have because there's so many people listening in the Math Moment Maker community who are listening right now and saying like, I want to make changes in my classroom. Like maybe your story resonates with them or maybe John and my story resonate with them and they want to know like, how do I do it differently? So I'm wondering, can you help us with like, what about that book? Like what made you even pick up that book in the first place? And how did it lead to the talk? And we can dive into that talk after. Like, why did you think it was useful to share with the teachers you work with? Well, first, I'll credit my wife with recommending the book. So she's often a person who loves to read. She goes through lots of books, lots of different genres. And she really enjoyed that book and just said, you really should read this, not even thinking from a math point of view, but just life in general. I mean, change exists everywhere. It doesn't matter if it's in education or with your family, any of that stuff. So we, she just encouraged me to read it. So I did. And of course, you've read too. It's an amazing book because there are just so many connections to our lives professionally, personally. And anytime I read a book that's not a mathy book, I can't help but start to think about a math lens with it. And a lot of the work that we do as educators is around the change effort, whether we're changing students or we're trying to change teachers or administrators or school districts. And so at the time, I also had an experience where I was coaching at a school. I was working to do some professional learning and I had 
run into a grade level of teachers and then one teacher in particular in that grade level who I classify as fairly resistant to the ideas that we were trying to promote. And this one individual was really rude. And it sort of started me on this journey. I was so surprised at his reaction to change in math and sort of surprised at the anger that I kind of perceived in this, where I I left feeling really frustrated that he kind of got into my head during my session. I don't think I had a great session working with him. And over time, I realized that it's my job as a leader in math ed and working in this school that I need to figure out a way to connect with this person. And then it got me thinking about, well, why do people resist change anyway? And so I'd been reading the Chip and Dan Heat book, and I'm like, I just want to go all in on this. So I actually dedicated a good chunk of a year to research this whole idea of change. And the switch book was written so well about it, it had that framework with the elephant and the rider and the path that it made it so clear. So that just became a big focal point of the presentation. And I guess for the readers who haven't read the, or your listeners who haven't read the book yet, I can explain quickly what I mean with the elephant rider and path. So Chip and Dan Heath, when they try to think about our brains, the way they describe it is they say our brain is of two minds, basically, which is we have an emotional side of our brain and a logical side of our brain. And to give an analogy of that, they see the emotional side of our brain as a big elephant that's powerful. It's where our motivation and our drive come from. It's what makes us want to change. That feeling we get to move ahead or the feeling we get to resist is all from our elephant. It's how we feel. That's the elephant part of our brain. The logical part of our brain, they see as a rider sitting atop the elephant trying to control the elephant and moving the elephant in places. The rider is the one that plans and organizes. And when those two parts of our brain are in concert, so for instance, let's say we had a health issue. I talk about this in my talk that if you had like a heart attack, for instance, that you luckily survived from, that's going to make you feel something. You're going to feel really motivated to make a change. You had a real big scare. Now you want to change something. When your rider kicks in, your rider starts planning things like exercise, eating healthy. You make charts and lists and everything that you're ready to do to help make this change. And you start your path on a healthy lifestyle. And as long as those two are in concert, you're good to go. But what happens a lot in our lives is that the elephant and the rider don't always agree. And so let's say a year later, you know, you're wanting to stay on this healthy eating kick, but it happens to be Girl Scout cookie season and the elephant really would like some Girl Scout cookies. The elephant is so powerful that it overrides our rider. And we've all had these experiences. Anytime we wanted to try a change effort and then we failed at it, it's often because our elephant had a different motivation at that time and we've caved into the elephant there. So they look at our sort of brain in those two places. And the third part of the framework that the authors talk about is the path that the elephant walks on. And the path is the environment. It's where you are. So it's your house. If it's a personal change, it's a school. If it's a, we're thinking about educational change. What I love about the book is that the authors give real concrete ideas about how do you work with people who have elephant issues, who have difficulty with motivation, or how do you work with people who have rider issues? Like they're totally motivated, but they don't know where to go on how to do these next steps? Or what if they have path issues? What if the structure of the school isn't conducive to that change effort? What can we do to actually make it more conducive to that? And so the book really helps us think about how do we support change efforts so that we can reduce or even eliminate the resistance that we often experience with that. And it's a yeah, really attainable book that I highly recommend everybody read. John and I have both read that book. We really, really have learned a lot. And even just 
by what you explain there, I'm sure that it's resonating with people like they can picture. Yes, like that is me. The hardest part about it is even though you now are now aware of it, actually like doing what you need to do in order to make sure all three of those things align can be really difficult. You know, this might not even happen outside of a single person. Like I'm picturing when a husband and wife and I'll say my wife, let's say, says, hey, maybe we need to eat more healthy. And she, you know, she's sort of the rider, like thinking logically, rationally. And sadly, I feel like I'm the elephant most times in those cases, because I'm the guy that wants to eat the cookies and cheat, right? But this happens within our own brains as well. And I don't know, Mike, have you had the opportunity to check out the book Atomic Habits? We've mentioned it on the podcast before. If you haven't, it is a super cool read. Hey, Math Moment Makers, Kyle here, and I've got just a quick message specifically for our district-level mathematics decision makers out there. Do you feel like you're spinning your wheels when making district-level goals for mathematics programming from kindergarten through grade 12? Setting new goals each year only to find little to no real shift in pedagogical practice or educator content knowledge across the district as a whole? Take a moment to book a short call with our team so we can learn more about your specific district and educator learning needs in mathematics so we can assist you in taking the first step of many in the right direction. Visit makemathmoments.com forward slash district to book a web call with our team today. We have a limited number of spots for districts just like yours, so don't wait head to makemathmoments.com forward slash district and grab a spot in our calendar now. I haven't, but I'm definitely going to write that down because it sounds right up my alley. Yeah, it's an awesome read because it kind of builds on this, you know, the Heath brothers did a great job of talking about that brain aspect and the dichotomy between the two, whereas Atomic Habits breaks down big things you want to achieve. Kind of like the how. Yeah, it's yeah, kind of like, like yeah, how exactly. Are we actually do it now. It takes this big thing you might want to make a change of and it says like the break it down to its atomic levels. You can break one big goal down into many 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 small goals and then if you can achieve these small goals, like these minor minor things, like the example we've given here on the podcast before is like if you want to be healthier and be physically fit, don't think about running the marathon or don't think about running that race or just don't think about losing weight if you want to become a runner. Think about just putting your shoes on when you wake up in the morning and that's it. It's like that's step one and it's like if you can master step one, then think about step two. Once you have your shoes on, you know, yeah, just go outside and if you can do that, then you're on your run and if you can break down these big ideas into these small things, then you can change your life. I find that that kind of goes hand in hand with switch. And something that we've also kind of mentioned about changing your life and it goes hand in hand is about this idea of like, don't break the chain, which is like, if you can set up a streak, we've referenced this app on our phones called streak, which all it does is allow you to like check off that you did this task today and it keeps an ongoing streak. And instead of thinking about, do I want to keep doing this day to day to day, like run every day, don't think about running, just think about, I don't want to break this streak I have going because otherwise I have to start all over again. That idea can also help with mindset, you know, these habits and making these changes in people's lives. So 
those are huge things about life. But if I steer this talk now to go, you know, math and helping teachers change, even helping kids change, Mike, how are you using the lessons from Switch to work with teachers? So if you think about the framework with Elephant Rider and the path, one of the things that I've been doing, and I'm encouraging the coaches that I work with and school leaders is to look at the change efforts with that framework in mind and think about what are the possible elephant issues that people might have. So for instance, in a school I'm working with, one big elephant issue is that the change feels very daunting. Lots of schools have that issue where they try to change too much at the same time. Kind of going back to that atomic reference that you had that they're thinking big picture and not thinking about the small steps to achieve that. And so one of the things that we've been doing is using the idea that where Chip and Dan Heath say to, if you want to motivate the elephant, one thing you can do is shrink the change. So what we started to do is take these big lofty goals, these outcomes that they set, and we looked at what the sub-steps would be to achieve that. So for instance, if one of the big goals is that they want to have student-centered learning, right? Well, if you're a teacher that's really thought about your job as sort of being I do, then we do, then you do, where I'm just going to stand up and deliver some direct instruction, then you'll practice what I show you, and then I'll assess you on it. Going from that to student-centered learning is massive, and that spooks a lot of people's elephants. So the motivation, it won't be there for them. So if you take that big lofty goal and you break it down to sub-steps that people could do. So for instance, it might be, first of all, learn how to facilitate a number talk. Learn about number talks is like a nice, easy, attainable first step. Then facilitate one number talk per week is a very attainable goal where people not only don't feel intimidated by it, but they also get the success of achieving it, right? It also goes to that other book, which I know you probably talk about, which is The Power of Moments, where also by Chip and Dan Heath, where they talk about multiplying milestones, taking this long range journey here and breaking it down to sub-steps where people get intermittent success along the way that motivate them. So that's one way I've been using the switch book is to shrink the change for folks or looking at path issues. Like lots of times when we look at schools, there's a great quote from that book, Switch, where they say, what looks like a people problem is often a situation problem. And when you talk to school leaders and they're saying, yeah, well, the teachers just aren't doing this. Like we have all these great manipulatives. We invested all this money, but they're just not using them. And so they're blaming the teachers right away. But if you walk around the schools, one of the things that we discovered was that they had all these manipulatives, but they didn't actually think about how to situate them in the classroom. Like even little basic things like how do you store them and are they accessible? Do students have to do the walk of shame across the classroom to access them or are they readily available right at the tables where kids are working? All of these little things help shape the path. So in this other school that I was working at, that was an issue. So what we started to do is find ways that we could have the manipulatives readily available. It was just a natural part of the class. And because they were already out, they were being used. There was no having to dig through the closet to bring them out. Kids could see them. They didn't have to do the big walk of shame. So applying the ideas of motivating people's elephant, directing their riders, and shaping the path in the math classroom and in the school settings, that's kind of the how I'm doing that, taking these ideas and saying, well, is this a rider issue? And if so, what can I do to address the rider? What can I do to address the elephant? And it's been working fabulously. That's awesome. I really appreciate you taking the time to let us in on what that might look like and sound like. And what I'm envisioning is like the path in many cases is kind of the responsibility like of someone like yourself in your role or like John and I, when we're going in and trying to help either a teacher or if it's with a school or with a team, 
helping them to see that path. But by breaking it down, it's almost sometimes the path. I think we have to see the path further into the distance than they do. And we can't just have them see the end goal as the final result. And manipulatives is a great example. I know in our district, we were really trying to get teachers using manipulatives. We had done surveys through our math task force. And what we realized was that manipulatives weren't being used, especially as like we got out of primary, like in primary, obviously, we saw a lot of use, but then they sort of dwindled away. And some of those walk of shame issues were there. But then what we realized is like, we cleared a bit of that path, we didn't realize that's what we were doing at the time, we got teachers using them more. But then what we realized is that wait a second, the end goal we want is for teachers to be using them effectively, you know, where appropriate. And what we realized over time is that even even though we got usage up at first, a lot of teachers still weren't sure why they were doing what they were doing. So it made us reflect and say, wow, this path is a long path and we have to break it down and give those little pieces along the way and ensure that we kind of clear some of those obstacles. So that I think is such a spectacular read. Obviously, if folks have an opportunity to see you do the presentation on that particular topic, I think it would be great for them. But now I can't help but think that this next piece we wanted to chat about, which is that book by the same two authors, The Power of Moments, like John and I, I remember, and maybe John, you may or may not remember this. We were in British Columbia on a jog in the morning before we had to go do a presentation. And we were talking about how the Heath brothers, they have this like magical ability to take ideas that are really complex, like based on research and based on brain science and based based on all of this really complex stuff that comes from white papers. And they're able to chunk it down to a place where you could pick up this book and go, wow, that makes sense. And when we picked up this book, The Power of Moments, the reason we did was because we had already been talking about how we were going to create this Making Math Moments framework and so on and so forth. And this book blew our minds that really they had implemented the power of moments, in our opinion, in essentially every book that they had written or the ones that we had actually read anyway. They have many other great books. So I'm wondering, did Switch lead you to pick up this book, The Power of Moments? Or tell us a little bit more about that, because at Camped, in San Antonio this past July, we saw you do this talk. And it was like, we felt like we were brothers from another mother or something because, you know, it was like we were all on the same page. And yet Mike and John and I have only had the opportunity to meet just a handful of times in the past. So what's the story behind that? Did Switch lead you to this or did your wife recommend it again? Or, you know, what led you to here? Because I think that book really impacted how we do everything now, whether it's in the classroom, whether it's how we present or how we even set up the conversations in this particular podcast. So Megan got me started with Switch and it was so good. Then I started looking at what else they produced. So then I read their book Made to Stick, which is why some ideas survive and others die or something like that. I forgot the subtitle there. And so I did a talk for school leaders that was all around how do you turn adversaries into allies? It's sort of like the sequel to my understanding resistance in math education. By the way, you mentioned if people wanted to see that presentation on understanding resistance where I reference switch and everything on my website, mathleadership.org, NCTM actually recorded that session that you guys saw. And I have oh, the video report on my website under presentations if people want to watch that presentation there. We will add it to the links for sure. Oh, sure. Excellent. 
So made to stick, I integrated into this talk around how do we get all stakeholders behind an initiative that we want. So parents, school board members, administrators, everybody. And so I used some of Chip and Dan Heath's book for that. And then after reading that book, it really got me just excited about their work. So pretty much now, if they write something, I'm going to read it. And so the third one that I had read was The Power of Moments. And again, I saw all these math connections and I'm like, the psychology of why we remember things is what got me excited. And so then I started to just make notes in the margins of like, yeah, this is like three act task. That's how you build elevation. And this is, and so I kind of went through the book with that lens and then thought, you know what, this might be another presentation. And it was funny. I actually saw after I had, had developed the presentation, I saw something through Robert Kaplinsky. I think he was promoting some of your work. And, and I saw the power of moments or something. I forgot you're making math moments. And I thought, uh-oh, like, I wonder <laughs> if you guys were doing the same thing. There's a moment where I actually, I called Robert and I'm like, hey, Robert, is uh, <laughs> like, I do this stuff with like, Chip and Dan Heath because I just spent like six months developing a talk on it. And uh, <laughs> I think I re- reached out to you guys too, just to make sure we were doing like parallel support of things and like I wasn't stealing thunder. And, and it's nice to know that like, I sort of dove into the psychology and you guys have sort of the pragmatic practical piece of it. So it's, I like that our two talks are very supportive of one another. And, uh, but anyway, that's what got me into it was I, I'm now just a big fanboy of the Heath brothers and whatever they write. So the one thing I have to worry about is like, I don't know if I can make another math presentation with a Heath book. I think I'll, <laughs> I'll then just sort of, I was, was going to ask you, it's hard not to do it. Though. Yeah. They have- I was going to ask you, they just came out with decisive how to make better choices. And I just finished reading that one. And I was just going to ask you, just, do you have anything in the works on the Heath brothers and decisive? It's actually, I have the book I haven't read it yet. I have a different book from a different author that I'm pursuing as my, my next project, but I'm still in the thick of the power of moments right now. Hey there, Math Moment Makers. Are you a dedicated listener? Like, I'm talking, have you been listening for a couple of months, maybe even a couple of years? Well, if you haven't taken a moment to leave us a rating and review on your favorite podcast platform, it would mean so much to us. It'll take you under one minute uh, so that you can help more educators see and experience the Making Math Moments That Matter podcast. Uh, Do us this huge solid. Uh, We thank you from the bottom of our hearts. And uh, here is today's episode. You know, what we're realizing, John and I are realizing is that taking great work like the work from the Heath brothers. And like we said, basically they take everything they teach in their books and they put it in practice or it's already been in practice. It's like they're breaking down what they do, which is amazing. And then I find like, if you could take that and apply it to your context. So like you said, when you reached out to us, it was like, first of all, thank you for having the thought to, Hey, you know, let's just double check, make sure that everything's aligned for what we're saying and what you're saying. And, you know, when we realized that like, yeah, you've taken the same idea and you've put it in this place where it's like more for the leadership role. We've done it for like, how are you going to do this in the classroom? And I think really all three resources are super helpful, right? Get people to get their hands on that book and then go and experience like from the leadership perspective and then come and check out what some of that might look like in the classroom. I think it's fantastic. So grabbing these books, we learn so much and then finding a way to put it into our own context, I think is what makes it so much easier for us to implement 
present ourselves. It's like that reflective practice. Like I'm sure after that six months of designing those talks, you probably at the end felt like, wow, now I really get this. I thought I got it initially, but now it's like, this is making way more sense to me, I'm sure. Mike, do you mind, like now that we've talked about the book for a little bit here, but we've never really elaborated on the book and the framework that the book provides for building powerful moments and saying like why certain moments are more memorable than others. But do you mind talking about the framework a little bit and how it relates to, again, math, teaching and learning? So the framework is really simple. As you know, they opted not to go with the acronym EPIC for their elements there, but I like it. I flip the letters around. So the authors say there, there are four elements that make up memorable moments. And memorable moments have at least one, if not all four of the elements. And it's elevation, pride, insight, and connection. And so the acronym EPIC. And so that helps me remember it. So each one, I'll just talk about briefly. So elevation, they talk about memorable moments rise above the everyday. They provide happiness. They stand out in our mind. And they give specific strategies that we can do to boost elevation, to actually create elevated moments. And the recipe they give for that is that if we boost sensory appeal, if we raise the stakes, and if we break the script, do those three things that will create an elevated moment. So we think about things in our regular lives, like weddings, for instance, like there's so much sensory appeal there with the flowers and the music and everything. That's why ceremonies and things stand out because we're doing that. We're breaking the script because you don't do that every day. And what's higher stakes than getting married, right? So you put all those three things together. That's why married or weddings stand out. But in a math class, if you look at like a three-act math task, for example, and one I use is the money roll task that I created where it starts with a video of me walking out and holding a roll of dollars to the camera. And then I step back and I basically like do a bowling motion and roll the bills out and it goes right off screen. And that presents this math task for people then trying to figure out how many dollars are in the whole roll. And so we go through that task. But if you think about a three-act math task, we've boosted sensory appeal because of the multimedia nature of it. Like all of your tasks, that's exactly what they do. We raise the stakes because in the course of facilitating this kind of work, you're making your thinking public, there's debate, you have your critique and the reasoning of one another, like any of that makes you vulnerable. And then there's also sometimes with three act tasks, a competitive nature that sometimes comes up where different groups are trying to really make sure they get the right answer and they're checking with what other people are doing. And then of course, we're breaking the script because a three act task is not what math is normally thought of or how math class is normally thought of. And so that's why a task like that is an elevated moment. So that's one example. It doesn't have to be as big as a three-act task, but just applying those three recipes, uh, boosting sensory appeal, raising the stakes and breaking the script is a way that you can create a moment of elevation. So the second part of the framework is pride. And for that, it's any moments where we're either successful or we've persevered through a challenge is a moment where we feel a sense of pride. And that's a huge memorable moment for people. And what's interesting sometimes is that lots of times we think of pride as like a successful moment, but it does count as any time that we've struggled through a challenge, even if we weren't successful, the fact that we stayed with it counted. And the pop culture reference I use with that is the first Rocky movie, where we assume just the way Hollywood works that he's going to win in that first movie. But I'm sorry if I'm spoiling it for any of your listeners, but he doesn't win, but he goes the distance. He goes 12 rounds with Apollo Creed. And so that's a moment of perseverance. And if we think about what we want from our math students, or even teachers, if you work with teachers, you want them to be able to persevere through these challenges, and you want them to have moments of success. And so they give very concrete ways in which we could, I mentioned earlier, like multiply milestones, like we take a big journey, and we break down. So 
we have a big math goal of students using numerical reasoning for addition. Well, there are some steps that prepare kids to get to that level. And if we actually use that model and, and develop moments where we can celebrate those minor successes along that larger journey, then it's a huge way to boost those moments of pride in students. And so that's the pride piece, the insight element. So moments of insight are when we gain insight into ourselves and into our world, or I like to say into ourselves and into mathematics, that we provide moments where students can either develop a deeper, richer understanding of a mathematical idea. And that's typically through representations and through collaboration and making connections with other student thinking and pulling all those ideas. I think of Peg Smith and the five practices, like all of that to me is how we develop insight by giving rich tasks that allow students to make sense of the mathematics. Those provide moments of insight. And I think also when you push kids out of their comfort zone, you can give them self-insight into what they're capable of. That's the other thing authors talk about is like, you learn a little bit about yourself too. And so that's another critical piece. And then the final framework is connection. And what I really love about connection, and I had to read that chapter a couple of times to really get a sense of like what that looked like in the math world. And it just finally hit me when they talk about Harry Reese and the study where he was doing the questioning of, um, so for your listeners, Harry Reese did a study where he brought college students together who didn't know each other. And he had had them, I think they rated, like they had a rating scale of like the connectedness they felt with like family members and friends and different things. And so they would rate different people on this scale. And then he had them work with strangers and they would go through a series of questions together. And it was three rounds and each round, the questions got more personal. So like the first one's like, describe a perfect day, right? And by the round three, the questions was like, if you were to die today without being able to talk to anybody, who would you regret most not having talked to or said something to them? Not <laughs> having you done that, right? That's right. super personal, yeah, right? For sure. What they found, what Harry Reese found with that is that after the study, the people had to rate their relationship with their partner in the study. There was a stranger at the beginning of the study, and they actually rated their partner higher than they rated some of their relatives in terms of their personal connection with them. And what they found was that you form bonds, you deepen ties with people, you form connectedness when you have what's called reciprocal vulnerability, like reciprocal escalating vulnerability. That's what happened in Harry Reese's study where it wasn't the questions that made them close. It was the fact that when the first person asked the question and then the other one responded, that the other person then also shared something personal. So you and I, if we're like we're talking right now and you share something, a vulnerable story at a time when like you were unsuccessful as a teacher or something, for instance, if I say, yeah, that sucks. Yeah, I feel for you. Like, that's it. I haven't done anything to reciprocate that sharing of vulnerability. But if I instead share a story from my professional experience where maybe I didn't feel like I was a great teacher at a time. And so what I've done is I've reciprocated that vulnerability. And so we then become closer as a result of that. And that's how relationships form. So where does this fit in the math world is, I think math class is a very vulnerable place. And when we can embrace that vulnerability, then I think it opens all of us up to learning because in math out of any other subject, I feel like there's so much posturing that happens in math. And I was very guilty of this as an adult learner. When I actually went back to professional learning, I was so guarded as a learner because 
I thought I was supposed to be the expert in everything. And I'm around these other teachers and I didn't want to be wrong in front of them. And so if I didn't know something, I would just hide it. And that it impacts your learning. If you hide the things that you don't understand. And if the instructor says, are there any questions? And you don't ask the question that would really help you understand something because you're afraid of how you might be perceived. You don't learn as much from that. And I remember Kanika Turner, who some of your listeners might know, she's an amazing math educator. She and I were in the same professional development organization. We were both trainers for the investigations math curriculum. And we got into it around the same time. And part of the work of being a trainer is that you have to do math with adults as we would go to these retreats and do math with like lots of really brilliant teachers. And I was terrified there because I just didn't have any confidence in my own math ability. And so I'm sitting there thinking I'm the only one. And Kanika, she and I ended up working together and she opened up to me about how she wasn't comfortable with this particular math task. She wasn't really sure what we were supposed to do. And she didn't really understand it, which then allowed me to say, yeah, I don't either. And I feel like maybe I don't even fit in with this group and stuff. So we had this conversation back and forth, which made us get closer. But it also was so nice for me to hear somebody else who was being open about how they weren't understanding everything we were supposed to do with this task. Well, it turned out, the entire group was like that. Like that was the culture they had established. And after that first day, we got to know everybody and everybody was in that space. And we found that with this group of adults, probably 36 of them, that it was a place that you could say, hey, I don't get it. I don't understand that representation or this math idea doesn't make sense to me. And there was no judgment. It was a place of collective learning where we all support one another. So by airing something like a misunderstanding, People didn't come in and rescue me. What they did is they found ways to ask more questions of me, to get me to think about it differently. And and what happened was my learning deepened so much. And so when I read this last one about connection in the power of moments, I really started to think about like, how do we establish that sort of shared vulnerability in math class with students? How do we orchestrate that? And I think that's something that like we have to be very intentional as teachers to make that happen. We have to provide moments for that and actually talk about it. Because once Kanika and I got to talk about it with the other teachers, that's when we, it was sort of like put out there like, yeah, this is our culture. This is what it's like here. And it's like, oh, now we know. Like we had to explicitly talk about it to understand that that's how we interact in there. And I think as teachers, we need to make that explicitly clear for students that this is a vulnerable place. And there are times where you might feel like you don't know something, but we want a community where we can share that openly. And once you have that kind of community, then those moments of connection are going to thrive and it's going to help all of your students move forward in their learning. So those four elements, elevation, pride, insight, and connection, when used in concert and sort of woven into the framework of your math classroom, then I feel like that's where we create memorable math experiences that students will take with them for years to come. That's uh, fantastic because for how many years, like when I think about those four and I think about how they connect to, you know, what John and I, we tend to talk about sparking curiosity, fueling sense making and igniting teacher moves and buried within that. We've shared so many stories about how we focus so much on sparking curiosity, but that was like the only thing we focused on. And many times our lessons would flop. And that makes me think about these four pieces. And I think we were working on that elevation piece, like breaking the script 
script, getting kids curious, like getting them to lean in on tasks. But we were missing these other pieces, especially like the insight piece to me connects so much to fueling sense making, like helping kids make sense of the mathematics that we're actually trying to, you know, we're doing all this work for. Like, why are we engaging students in the first place? Well, it's to help them understand the math and like build on their current conceptions of mathematics and and really understand it, not just sort of like game the system like you or John and I did when we were in school in different ways. And then finally, that connection piece, like if there's no connection, we were talking about this on our episode earlier in the year about the first day of school, like how important it is to really ensure that kids feel like they belong and that they can open up and be vulnerable. So these four, I think, are key. They're so important. And I'm so happy that you had the opportunity to share that up with us. Before we wrap up here, Mike, we know you've got some other resources for our listeners and for educators out there. We know that you've written a book called Beyond Answers, Exploring Mathematical Practices with Young Children. Do you want to take a quick moment and just let our listeners know like a little bit more about that book? And then we'll talk about your upcoming grad program where you're helping so many teachers. Sure. Yeah. So Beyond Answers, I wrote that when I was still in second grade. I was still a second grade teacher and I wrote it because at the time when Common Core came out in the United States that we had the standards for mathematical practice are probably one of the most powerful elements of the Common Core. But the problem with them is I feel like they're underutilized and they were overlooked, partly because they're just in the front matter and people just breeze over it. But the other part, as an elementary teacher and particularly primary grade teacher, the way they were written, it was basically inaccessible for me and my colleagues, I think. There were times where we would have these debates, and these are folks who are deep in the math world as teachers. We would have debates on what does it mean to reason quantitatively and abstractly? What does it mean to look for and make use of structure in first grade? And when you look at the actual language of the standards, because they're K-12, it gets really sophisticated very quickly. And so it was really frustrating for us as primary grade teachers to think about, well, how do we get kindergartners to model with mathematics? How do we get them to reason quantitatively and abstractly? And so I began this journey of just trying to make sense of it for myself as a teacher. And then I had more and more conversations with other teachers in kindergarten, first and second grade. And I began to get a clearer sense of what these practices look like. And so that's the start of the book. And the whole book is really looking at each of those practices in depth and understanding what it looks like in kindergarten, first and second grade. There's classroom vignettes. So I visited a bunch of classrooms and we'd record them or teachers would transcribe what happened in their classroom for me. So they're actual classrooms with dialogue and teacher reflections. So you can see an example of kindergartners modeling with mathematics or kindergartners looking for making use of structure or second graders engaged in repeated reasoning and looking at regularity. And so That to me is the big picture of what the book does is it helps people to really understand what it looks like, not just in K-1 and 2, but really in all the elementary grades. And sort of the immediate takeaway people can get from it is that in each chapter, there's great resources and tasks and routines that teachers can implement right away. And then if they do a deeper dive into the book, that they will gain a much richer understanding of how to actually facilitate student-centered learning where kids are actively engaged in these math practices. It's so great that you've done that, that you've taken the curriculum, the Common Core, and it's not just Common Core. There's all kinds of curriculum from different places around the world where one teacher reads it 
another teacher reads it and the interpretation is so different. So I think that is so important for us as teachers to be able to dive in and obviously understanding our curriculum and knowing the curriculum is important, but then really trying to hash out like, what does that mean? How do I interpret this and what does it look like in my own classroom? So I know that teachers will find that to be a great resource. We'll ensure to have that link in the show notes. And then finally, the last thing we don't want to end this conversation without asking you a little bit more about your grad program at Mount Holyoke, which involves not just teachers being there live with you in the room, but I hear you have teachers from all around the world who join you in this super dynamic grad program. Can you tell us a little bit more about that before we wrap up? Sure. Yeah. So we work with kindergarten through eighth grade math teachers and coaches. Those are the people that join our program. And it's a master's of arts in teaching mathematics. So the focus is on just math teaching. And we take a deep dive into all of the math from kindergarten through eighth grade. And you're right, we have people who are there live, but the classrooms are set up like TV studios in the summertime when we do our summer courses. So a quick thing is that when I talked about in the very beginning of this interview that I switched majors to education, my original intent was to do video production. That's what I went to school for. So I still get to <laughs> use that part of my nice. schooling before I switch to education. So I actually work to design this system. We call it dynamic hybrid learning. We call it hybrid because we have online and on-campus people working together. And it's dynamic because anytime I've seen this model done before, it's usually just a camera off to the side. And anyone who's online, it feels like you're watching someone else's class. You're just kind of sitting there and you're not part of it. We break the fourth wall. So the cameras are positioned in ways that the people online feel like they're sitting right in the class and the cameras move in the room wherever the action is. So they can see all the other participants in the class. And then we see all of the people who are zooming in. We're using Zoom as our platform up on the screen. And so everyone who's there, whether you're on campus or you're in Mozambique, as some of our students are, that you fully participate. And we actually do breakout groups and um, small group work. So we'll assign everyone a task. We'll give them a rich math task to do. And then we have iPads all in the room and we put the iPads into small groups and some of the people on campus take the iPad to a different space with the different manipulatives they're going to use. And on that iPad are a couple of people who are in different parts of the world who show up on that little iPad. They also have the manipulatives they need at their house or their school, wherever they're working. And then those four people engage in the math together. And there's another group of four, some on campus and some somewhere else in the world. And so the facilitators who are running these classes visit the groups as if they were in a regular classroom. You just walk around the room, except two of the people are on iPads, but we can still interact and talk with them and see their representations. And then we end the breakout groups. Everybody comes back in the whole group. We debrief. And so what our participants have said is it feels like they're sitting right there in the class. It's like as someone once said it, online learning that doesn't feel like online learning. And that to me is all we strive to do is to really break the rules of what we consider online learning. We want fully interactive, rich experiences. And I think that's what we've done. So if people are interested, if you go to mathleadership.org, you can read about the master's program, see if you're interested in it. I'm always happy to chat with people about it, but we have a number of participants from all around the world that are a part of it. And we love to keep growing the program. 
I can envision what you just said in the classroom, and it sounds like you are making amazing math moments for those people by, uh, sounds like breaking the script for what online learning is supposed to look like. So awesome job there. I'm interested to check out mathleadership.org to learn more. Mike, we want to thank you so much. But before we finally hang up the call, where can our listeners learn more about you and the resources you have? mathleadership.org is my website and you can also follow me on twitter at mike flynn 55 awesome this is fantastic thanks so much for joining us mike we dove into so much great learning i'm actually shocked that we managed to because we got such a huge amount of value here for the math moment maker community we hope that you have a awesome remainder of your family leave with your new bundle of joy and i'm sure we'll catch up with you soon either here on the podcast or maybe in person at one of the upcoming math conferences in the near future sounds great thanks so much for joining us, Mike. Take care. You too. Thanks. We want to thank Mike Flynn again for spending some time with us to share his insights with us and you, the Math Moment Maker community. As always, how will you reflect on what you've heard here from this episode? Have you written ideas down, drawn a sketch note, sent out a tweet, called a colleague? Be sure to engage in some form of reflection to ensure that the learning sticks. If you're listening to this episode in the week or two after it goes live, then you might know that the spring conference season is beginning. When we attend various conferences throughout the year, a big question we always have is, is this going to be worth it? Or how do I maximize my experience at the conference? In episode 15, we gave you five tips on how you can get the most out of the conferences you attend and also what you can do if you can't attend a conference this year. So after you listen to this episode, definitely head over to makemathmoments.com forward slash episode 15 to listen to that episode and get the most out of the conferences that are coming up for you. Plus, we have a resource that you can take with you to those conferences to maximize your learning. You can download the Make Math Moments Conference Companion at makemathmoments.com forward slash companion. Yeah, that's right, John. You can print it out or use it digitally on your device. And what was the coolest experience but walking into a session last year at NCTM and seeing someone in the audience actually using the conference companion and we had to stop by and ask where they got it from. And uh, it was really cool to catch up with a listener of the podcast. So make sure you grab that conference companion over at makemathmoments.com forward slash companion. In order to ensure you don't miss out on new episodes as they come out each Monday morning, be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform. Also, if you're liking what you're hearing, just like we mentioned at the beginning of the episode, make sure to share the podcast with a colleague and help us reach a wider audience by leaving us a review on iTunes or now called Apple Podcasts and tweet us your biggest takeaway by tagging at MakeMathMoments on Twitter or on Instagram at MakeMathMoments. Show notes and links to resources from this episode can be found at MakeMathMoments.com forward slash episode 66. Again, that's MakeMathMoments.com forward slash episode 66. Well, Math Moment Makers, until next time, I'm Kyle Pierce. And I'm John Orr. High fives for us. And high fives for you.
if you are a district leader of mathematics, a math coach, a math curriculum coordinator, a superintendent, a principal, getting teacher buy-in for effective math teaching practice is top of mind. And plans only go so far. You can make you know detailed plans and and carefully designed goals with clear objectives and key results that are measurable. But that can feel like it all falls flat if we can't engage our teachers in the work. Working with teachers who do not want to change their teaching practices is one of the most frustrating and challenging parts of our job. How do I help teachers engage in effective teaching practices when they keep pushing us away? If you can't reach the tipping point in mass adoption of effective mathematics teaching strategies, then it's it's likely we won't see student improvement in mathematics. We have a free training uh, an accompanying workbook for leaders of mathematics like you. Uh, the, math, the Make Math Moments team, myself, John, and Kyle, walk you through our four-stage process uh, we use with district partners to create clear, measurable, sustainable PD action plans, but more specifically on how to also get teacher buy-in so that it drives student engagement. So step one, register for this free training, get your planning workbook, um, and then watch the training. Schedule some time on your calendar so you can watch it and go through the workbook after completing that workbook, you're going to have a clear, measurable vision, action plan for mathematics to get more teacher buy-in, but also be able to hit your goals for the 2024-2025 school year. So head on over to makemathmoments.com forward slash four stages to start this free training.